Welcome to the first ever episode of my podcast, Ninada, The Waves of Music. This podcast is a platform to create a dialogue between the arts and science. In particular, we are here to explore the confluence of music, culture, and cognition. I'm your host, Chaitra. I'm a physicist and a Carnatic classical musician with an interest in understanding the scientific and cultural aspects of music. In this episode, we will be talking to Kit Lyles, who is a jazz musician based in Chicago. Hi, Kit. Welcome to our podcast. We are very, very happy to have you here. And we are absolutely looking forward to talking to you about your music, your mixed cultural heritage, and how all of this has found its expression through your art. I only know that you play the bass predominantly and you also play guitar and piano and you compose music and you have two albums so far. So tell us about why you chose music to begin with. How did you get started and why did you stay? Thanks so much for uh, having me here, Chaitra. And um, I'm excited to kind of talk about music with y'all. And yeah, so so I'm a professional jazz musician now, um, but when I first started, I actually started um, on trumpet. <laughs> Just or That was my first instrument in like seventh grade. So I was sort of a late bloomer. And then, so I, and I liked trumpet, but then as I like was going into like end of middle school, going into high school, some friends of mine and me were like getting really into rock music. And like, you couldn't really play trumpet and rock music. Mm-hmm. Like I was like listening to Led Zeppelin and... Metallica and Rage Against the Machine and um, <laughs> System of a Down. Those were like, and so I kind of was like, well, my friend plays guitar and my other friend plays drums and she's going to sing. So like nobody plays bass. So I guess I should buy a bass. <laughs> so I bought my first electric bass literally so that I could play a Nirvana song in the school talent show with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally why I play bass is because no one else played it, which was very, uh, insightful actually (laughs) as you can always get work as a bass player because not that many people do it but so yeah I started on electric bass playing like rock with my friends and those were some of my most formative music experiences though because we would just get together in my friend's basement and um and I was starting to learn some formal music stuff but it was only in the beginning of it so for the most part we were kind of just making it up as we went along and well, you know, I would just devour songs that I liked from like printing tabs on the internet. And then we would just make stuff up. Literally, we would just make up stupid songs and like jam on them endlessly. <laughs> oh. That's the best way to learn though. It was very, it was very organic and very um, just joy driven. Mm-hmm. And that was where I fell in love with music. And we like did some shows and then, you know, with the turning point, my sister had done this jazz class and I was kind of learning from a, one of the same teachers in our hometown who was a jazz musician. And so starting my sophomore year of high school, I auditioned and went into that same jazz class after my sister graduated. Okay. And one of my best friends was also in the class with me. And so for three years, I did half of my high school experience was learning jazz. 
Nice. Uh, so I was a late bloomer, but that program was so amazing that I was able to catch up pretty fast. Basically, we would spend half the day at our usual high school doing academic subjects, and then we'd travel to the other high school and spend half the day there literally doing jazz wow. for three years. So that was like the most formative experience I had. I mean, it taught me an enormous foundation that I built on, you know. That's and, fantastic. But it also gives me like one insight into your current way of doing music, which is you tend to play a lot with your friends. Is, is that one of the takeaways that you have from that program? I mean, I think it's hard to play music with people that you aren't in some sort of relationship with. It's a thing. I mean, professional music exists, but you have to have some sort of baseline, you know, working kind of even if they're not a friend, like association. And I think people tend to gravitate towards playing with people they're very comfortable with as human beings, you know? So at least in jazz, I think this is more, maybe more of a jazz thing. Exactly. So I, was going to say, I think it's more of a structural recorded music kind of thing, because mm-hmm. for me, this is just not true at all. Like for kind mm. of classical concerts, you end up playing with people that you have never met before. Mm-hmm. put on the stage and you kind of improvise from there on so it's uh this is like a very important difference between the two i feel yeah and i mean certainly that happens with jazz mm-hmm. um not everyone does it necessarily as strongly the way that me and my group you know associated people mm-hmm. do i mean there's certain many times where i end up in professional situations where i don't know anyone on the stage mm-hmm. and we've never played together before you know yeah. because jazz is very much is that kind of music Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, you saw me with Chichito Valdez. That was like a completely business transaction in the sense of mm-hmm. and musical transaction. But like, you know, neither of us knew him before that. He needed sidemen mm-hmm. in Chicago. He called us through someone else gave him our number. So it was completely a new relationship. So like the business side of it, there is a lot more of that. And like lots of great music is made that way. But um, when it comes to like my own original projects, and I think most people's like original music projects that they like lead, they tend to gravitate more towards people that they have relationships with. So I was going to ask, do you write compositions with people in mind? Like this is who you want on drums, this is who you want on trumpet for that particular Mm -hmm. composition? Or does it fall after? Kind of. I mean, I write it for a group in mind. Usually, so like I have a working group that's a set group of people. So if I'm writing a song that I think we're going to play in that group, then I'm considering those voices. I mean, Duke Ellington is famous for that. His like whole thing was that he wrote very specifically for the musicians in his orchestra, and that was part of his signature sound. And so you couldn't really separate his compositions from the individual identities of his musicians, really. And in fact, a lot of times when people play his compositions, sometimes it kind of feels like something's missing because it's hard to like inhabit that spirit. So like I am very, and Char- Charles Mingus was similar. Mm-hmm. He's like, those are two of my biggest jazz influences, Charles Mingus and Duke Ellington. Both of them are kind of marked by the way they write very individualistically for their particular bandmates. Mm-hmm. It's not as uh, abstract of a writing concept. I mean, Charles Mingus didn't even write out a lot of his music. He would just sing parts to the musicians. Like, you play this and just like sing it. Or it was more of an oral tradition almost. <laughs> That, those were maybe the exceptions. I mean, most jazz musicians were you mm-hmm. know, curiously writing out all the parts. So like, I definitely am inspired by that idea. I don't know that I do it to the extent that they did. 
Um, like I, you know, my compositions form without relation to what I'm thinking about doing with them initially. And then as I'm developing it and arranging it, I'm thinking about the group it's going to be played for. But mm-hmm. I write music pretty constantly and pretty much just out of like capturing moods I'm in or, or just, you know, curiosity from a more like technical standpoint. You know, so many of the ideas kind of come about organically. And then the main bulk of the work is like then sitting down and like working on that idea, developing it into something that makes any sense or that accomplishes whatever you want it to accomplish. And so that's where maybe the calculation starts to come in where you're like, okay, I know this is going to be for my group. My group has seven people in it. Mm-hmm. So like, how do I factor that in? Like, who's going to do what? Who would I want to play the melody? Am I going to arrange it? You know, but the cool thing about jazz tunes is that often they're pretty flexible. So, What are some of your most important considerations than putting an album out, for instance? One of my favorite music theory teachers in high school always said that composers write what they want to hear. And I think that's pretty true. Yeah. You know that if I put out an album, a lot of the people who hear it are going to be friends and family. And then I'm thinking the other like half of it is jazz clubs, festivals, like the booking agent side of it, you know? Yeah. Like those are kind of the two most important first (laughs) groups of people who it matters to like, but you know, like if I'm writing 50 songs and I pick 10 to be on an album, it has an impact on which ones I pick. I'm trying to pick stuff that has like a, you know, nice range of different sounds and that feels really relevant to me, but that also is going to translate well into the stage and like to the types of performance opportunities I have. Mm-hmm. And then the size of the group, I mean, and on my last album, I sort of threw that out a little bit and was like, I'm going to try not to limit myself. So like I preserved enough of the ability to like perform it with my core group. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I tried not to limit the compositions just based around that. So... But it's hard because it's like, it's hard to book gigs that pay enough money for seven people. Yeah. So there's limited performance opportunities for your original music, but it's also the only thing that can get you to better things. Yeah, absolutely. What are some factors that have helped you grow as a musician? Like in Big Before Dawn, you have incorporated a lot of varieties of different sounds and beats and they sound very beautiful together. How did you learn about all of these kinds of music? What was your inspiration and what was your process for writing these compositions? Mm-hmm. It came about pretty similarly to the way most of my stuff does. It was pretty organic. So it was all like music scene connections from all the gigs I do. And um, the different beats were from other bands that I've played with where I learned those styles of music over a couple of years of playing with them and just learning from them. So like um, the song you mentioned, The Water and the Wind, um, uses uh, kind of a mixture of some grooves from South America, mm-hmm. including Chilean cueca mm-hmm. and Peruvian vals and um, chacarera, which is like a Chilean Argentinian rhythm, really. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all kind of, they all have some similarities, which is why I'm saying it's a blend because I'm not doing like a pure folk version of any of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, taking the, some of the rhythms and then putting them in a jazz context. Yeah. And so I learned all that from my friend Yuri Hevia, percussionist from Chile, who right. lives in Chicago and I play with him. And he's taught me a lot about those styles of music. And I didn't like set out to do it. I was just writing a song and it was just kind of like, oh, this kind mm-hmm. of fits this groove. Like, 
Yeah. I guess I should try to go for it. And like, and those grooves, you know, not surprisingly based on the history of the new world have some things in common also with some Mexican music. Mm -hmm. I play in this band that does a lot of, um, a lot of different Latin American rhythms, but also son jarocho, mm -hmm. the traditional Mexican rhythm, uh, Afro-Mexican, I should mention, all of these have African roots. Um, so that's sort of the common link between jazz and all of these different South American, Mexican, Latin American in general rhythms. So many of them have African roots. So I had them, my two friends who do the son jarocho were on the track too. And so it was kind of a blending of all those things with jazz mm -hmm. um, but it came about through all the kind of working connections I have from just playing gigging for a living so from transitioning from the trumpet to the bass and then you also play guitar and piano so mm -hmm. playing these different instruments did they change the way you perceive music um that's a good question definitely you won't really meet a jazz musician who doesn't have some small amount of piano or guitar chops because harmonic elements are such an important part of jazz. You just sort of have to get your hands dirty and like play some piano, basically. I mean, there's a reason they require some basic piano in college music courses, you know? Oh, okay. Like my conception of jazz harmony and the way I hear jazz was influenced differently by all those instruments, you know, like ba playing bass, gives you a really solid approach to hearing how it all works because you're sort of the foundation under everything mm -hmm. um, and you're playing the whole time, you know, so that's a very unique perspective. But then playing piano and guitar adds a lot onto that. And yeah, it's like kind of essential to getting a bigger picture of how the music works. Bass is accompaniment instrument for the most part. Mm -hmm. You can play it solo and there's brilliant artists who do it mm -hmm. and it's really fun. But you know, most of what you're doing is learning how to be really good at making someone else sound good mm -hmm. and like how to support a band and how to play really well with people. So like the art is very internal because mm -hmm. so much of it is reacting to what someone else is playing. Whereas playing guitar or piano, you can actually hold down the show by yourself. And that's like a completely different mindset. I was interested in finding ways to be able to play in smaller groups where I could have a composition of mine realized without having to organize seven people because it's really hard, you know? And also, I mean, I like playing music with friends or in family gatherings and informal settings and guitar and piano are just really suited to that, especially guitar. I mean, that's mostly, you know, I've been doing guitar for that reason for a long time. Like we used to just jam with my uncles and play as a family and learn songs that way. And I have seen photos of you sitting with like four or five of your uncles playing uh, guitar. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm really into informal music. For a professional musician, like some of my favorite music is not the performance. Stuff. It's the like communal music when people are just gathered and, you know, sharing it with each other for purposes of culture. Mm -hmm. On that very wholesome note, I'm going to ask you a very dark question. Mm. <laughs> Hit me with it. What is your definition of art? Do you think that art always stems from the heart like you're describing now, which is just mm -hmm. very organic, very informal art? Being a professional musician, trying to make a living out of music or any sort of art for that matter, do the harsh practicalities of life 
really crashing to the ground of necessary work sometimes. Definitely. I mean, the way I think about it is that art has never and never will exist in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Like the, the concept of pure art for its sake is almost sort of useless to me because it's always been made by people living in their environments and responding to them. So, I mean, I think it can be all of those things where like there are times where you're writing something and it's just purely about the thing you're trying to capture from an artistic, emotional standpoint. And then there are times when you're playing a gig purely for the money. All of that's part of the spectrum, you know, and I don't think all artists think of it this way, but jazz musicians tend to see it as a like it all feeds into your development there's like kind of a thing about like shitty gigs you know and like you have to do the shitty gigs to get better and like that it all makes you a better musician and feeds your drive and your career and you know there's a lot of thoughts that like the necessity and the struggle does draw out work because it forces you to respond to the fact that it's hard and you have to be creative and really try and hustle mm-hmm. to be able to put out stuff and survive and do enough gigs and all that. But there's definitely also a dark side to that where like, if I didn't have any gigs or anything, I would still be making a lot of music. And I think most people who do music feel that way. The questions of like capitalism and music intersecting. Yeah. So much of it, I see it as like sort of just a constant negotiation between principles. There's no one perspective that I find to be all-encompassing or completely correct. Mm -hmm. I think some people have the perspective of the necessity of earning an income drives artists to innovate and create new things Mm -hmm. and spawns really beautiful art. Mm -hmm. I think some people have the perspective of the necessity of providing for yourself and how difficult that is interferes with art and really gets in the way of people having the ability to express their full humanity because they're so busy just worried about surviving. Mm-hmm. and locks a lot of people out of the arts. And I think that's very true, which, I mean, it's difficult to commit to a life in the arts mm-hmm. if you just don't have any resources. And lots of people still do it, but I think there is a trend of nowadays you see more and more people who are surviving in the arts had family money or, you know, because it's it's just really hard to do, to get, especially to get started. Yeah. It depends on what you're talking about. I mean, I'm talking mostly in a jazz context because that's mm-hmm. what I do. But so there's all of those elements all pulling against each other. There's a lot of ways to think about it. You know, I think the struggles of life, whatever they are, have always been, you know, a big part of the purpose of art is to capture that and express it so that you can deal with it. You know, it's a processing tool. Life comes in, you use art, and you put it back out, you know? I'm very cliche of when life hands you lemons. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't think any motivation for making art is better or worse than another. Making it just because you like it is great. Making it because you need to for a particular reason is great. Making it because you're happy is good. Making it because you're sad is good, you know? Do you think it comes out to be at the same quality, whatever your definition of quality might be? Hmm. Hard to say. Like, for example, like if you're making it for pure enjoyment versus if you're making it for money. Yeah. In in the worlds I'm in, Mm -hmm. nobody's making very much money. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everyone I know is like, they're not calculating or changing the music to try to make it more like appealing to people to make money. 
that's just not even a factor. So <laughs> I would say in the world I'm in, I think the quality is high either way, whether you're making it for pure enjoyment or whether it's tying into your career. I mean, there are a lot of jazz musicians who are maybe better at playing standards than writing music who put out albums of originals anyway, just because they have to. So like that maybe lowers the quality a little, like where like it'd be better if they just put out really cool albums of standards. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's, that's always been an interesting intersection of capitalism and jazz of like so much of the art form is improvising over an existing thing, but like you don't get royalties if it's an existing thing that someone else wrote. Musicians have sometimes just taken an existing song structure and written a new melody over it just so they could call it their own song, even though what they really wanted to do was just play over Cherokee. Charles Parker has a song called Coco and it's a pin playing over Cherokee. If he put Cherokee, he wouldn't have gotten any royalties, you know? So, I mean, it's, you know, it's complicated. On that note, when do you consider a piece of music as being inspired by another piece of music versus plagiarism? I think the idea of plagiarism and copyright infringement in music is taken way too far. I feel like the whole point of art and music and oral art forms and whatever is you build off of the existing cultural landscape. The whole art is to take something that exists and then be like, watch how I do it. I mean, that's not the whole art, but that's a big part of it. I mean, and I write a lot of originals and I really like writing original music, but like it's always nothing, again, nothing is produced in a vacuum. So like everything you write is you know, like 90% absorbed material that you're just repurposing and reimagining. And that's the whole point. Music almost used to be considered like cultural property, mm-hmm. not visual property. And mm-hmm. like the US is a very individualistic society. So like everyone has to slap their name on everything. But, you know, it's like if you think about like older folk songs, a lot of times you don't know who wrote plays it, you know, and it's like communal heritage and everyone owns it everyone might do it a little bit different. And that's like the beauty of it. And I think there's beauty in repetition, playing songs that have already been written and they're old. And, you know, that's why genres that are so old, like classical music, Indian classical music, um, folk music, blues, whatever, they all have different spans of history, but they stay relevant because of their cultural value. The repetition of your cultural heritage is valuable, you know? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that brings us to another kind of very tricky question, which is what defines different genres for you? Mm. Yeah, uh, that's a tricky one. People fight about it a lot. Our, uh, our teacher in college, Victor Goins, who was a uh, notoriously tough cookie, you could say, um, <laughs> he would constantly challenge us about what is jazz. I kind of feel like, honestly, the answer is you know it when you see it. Do you know always? Pretty much. Like, I think with jazz, so much of it has to do with what was the musician's training and, like, what scene are they a part of? I think that's a big part of it is, like, who are the people you collaborate with and where are you coming from musically? Mm -hmm. Even if you're making something that's very cross-genre or on the border, your primary identity... Of, of like where you like learned music and who you played with and like who you do play with. I think that is a very identifying element and that's like not how we usually think about it. We think about it as audible trait. Yeah. yeah. But um, I think there's always kind of a core aesthetic that you learned from jazz that still influences how you approach that. 
and a level of detail and improvisation, obviously. I don't know. It's kind of like this. We would use this as a debate topic in our like jazz history class. Like Louis Armstrong often played the same solo every time. Okay. And he's like one of the founders of jazz. It's supposed to be about improvisation. Mm-hmm. And often people will define jazz as improvisation. Yeah. They'll say like, oh, well, it's jazz if it's improvised, which is, you know, it doesn't go far enough because there's a lot of improvised music in the world. <laughs> um, you know, and it is a core element of it. But what does it mean if Louis Armstrong is playing the same solo mm-hmm. more than once? It's more about like the spirit of what he was playing. The fact that maybe he got to that solo that he started repeating through an improvisatory process and like, a, you know, an oral tradition process. It's really interesting the way you answered it because you're answering it from a purely musician's perspective, which is exactly mm-hmm. what you wanted. But also right. it gets even trickier perhaps if you're an audience member and you're just listening to the music and you have no idea who the musicians are. Yep. And that's, I think that's uh, one of the great problems we have. Um, there's a huge disconnect between the musicians and the audience on that. And a part of it is that, I mean, now it's just like, you know, you have access to all music that exists in a way. I mean, it's kind of overwhelming and people don't really know how to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. A non-musician might confuse an incredible jazz recording with shitty elevator music recording. And they might not know the difference. And like so much of how we hear things is influenced by context. So if you don't have a context for the music you're hearing, you don't know what to say about it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think genre elements are necessarily what the average audience member is going to hear the most. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily how they're going to think about it. One of the many aspects of artistic expression, I feel, is that artists are forever trying to capture and portray the realities that they experience. Given this fact, do you think that art and music in particular have any political or cultural statements to make? Uh-huh. It's, yeah, that's, that's a, always a very interesting question. I mean, I think art in and of itself is almost always political in some way, just because most things are political. Just the existence of jazz is extremely political yeah. because it was basically born out of an entire community, the African-American community, asserting their humanity in the face of being oppressed and brutalized. Even though I'm a jazz musician, I can't necessarily speak in detail to like what it really means to the African-American community, but I think it was both a healing mechanism of like expressing things that were beyond the real world because the real world was rough and a way of asserting humanity and being like, you know, how dare you treat us differently? It's it's a way of both showing your heart and your intellect and your personhood to the world. Jazz musicians talk about improvising everything as like speaking, as like language, as very individualized. It's, it's like it's supposed to represent your, who you are, the good, the bad, the in-between, the like you're having a bad day, you're having a good day. Like that's maybe one of the most defining elements of jazz is that it's not just about purely making good sounds. It's about making sounds that speak something about you. That was a very political thing. And I mean, it goes more in depth than that. I mean, I've even read theories or historical analysis that suggest that like the invention of bebop, Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, Dizzy Gillespie was partially fueled out of a way to make something so difficult that white musicians couldn't copy it and steal it from them. 
black musicians were so used to having music stolen from them. Ever someone else was making a bunch of money off of it, but they invented it. They were just like trying to make it so virtuosic, which it is. It's very difficult music that it couldn't be copied. Innovation out of necessity to maintain their originality and ownership of the music. I don't know. I can't comment on that theory that well. I've just heard it, read about it. That's interesting. Yeah. A lot of very traditional musicians also think that way. They think that with cultural confluences and with globalization comes the side effect of your music being diluted in some sense, and then your genre being, you know, it lends itself to misappropriation. What do you think about that concept in general? Is that a threat necessarily, or do you mm. think it's just a byproduct of music being accessible to many people? My personal opinion is that because art reflects our context, this is impacting people everywhere, including countries that are more homogenous because of the globalization of the world. It's like art's going to reflect that. The fact that I have all these friends coming from different cultural backgrounds, playing different kinds of music, you just can't really avoid that being part of your musical experience, at least in my personal experience as a working musician. But I think that's true kind of broadly now. We're just hearing so much music. The world's just, you know, it's everything is getting mixed up and like, I don't think that can be avoided. So, but there are better and worse ways to do it. Do you think it's shrinking the landscape of music or do you think it's expanding it? Hmm. That's like a very interesting question. I ask because I think people tend to underestimate the influence of the Western world. It's extremely powerful in the sense that any culture that stems in the West kind of tends to overpower more organic indigenous communities elsewhere. I see that as a negative thing. I think that's the, the definitely the darker side of it, of like homogenization, like forcing through, you know, obviously like no one's literally yeah. trying to force it, but through the factors that be, you know, yeah, like the fact that one cultural element has become almost universally recognized that's kind of shitty i think particularly when it's like mass media pop culture which like reflects mostly money interests more than it does artistic mm -hmm. interests you know yeah but you know i'm not one to be like a purist about art music versus pop music it's more of just like when the music's designed purely to make money i think that's a cheapening experience mm -hmm. um, where that stuff really is like calculated it's just like Let's like use the formula. Let's make something that's going to reach the most possible people and get the most possible money. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just not that much artistic risk anymore. Like no one's putting something on the line. They're not taking a chance on failure. But that being exported all over the world, that sucks. I don't know. I'm not into that. Which is why I think some of the counter response is kind of to like, in a way that's organic and respectful, learn traditional musics or cultural musics and keep them alive you know i'm not going to go out there and put my opinion as like a final word on any of this because it's just whatever i happen to think right now but i think to counter that trend you sort of have to fight it by spreading cultural music homogenization of culture is being undone but then there's like a new homogenizing force mm -hmm. so you sort of have to take the old the cultures that used to be specific to a people the music, for example, like, and maybe like more people need to learn it to keep it alive, to get it, keep it from getting overrun by these like larger forces. 
you could make that case. I mean, at the end of the day, like there's always going to be good art and good music. Yeah. Um, there's a scenario in which you could possibly truly diminish it. Mm -hmm. okay. It's sad to think about specific ones that already exist potentially dying out, you know, same mm -hmm. languages. Yeah. So speaking of yeah. preserving cultures and art or music in particular being a way to preserve your cultural identities, mm -hmm. that's kind of what you're trying to do, right? One part of what I do is definitely that. Okay. So tell us about that. So tell us about how trying to navigate two different cultures mm -hmm. manifests in your music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's gets very interesting because <laughs> like my mom's side, everyone is Lebanese. My mom's Lebanese. We're like a couple generations into being in America, but there's a large contingent of uh, family members <laughs> and a lot of connection to the culture still. More so through like food and values, you know, including like religion and like in the family, those are all prevalent things. Whereas like the language has been mostly lost. Both my grandparents spoke Arabic, they're both passed away. The, and the music was another one that like almost kind of got lost. My grandfather used to play Ditterbukke, which is a drum. And we had other relatives who played, but not that many have kept doing music. My grandma used to sing, mm -hmm. but she mostly sang jazz. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then she knew some Arabic songs. She loved listening to Ferouz. My grandparents loved music and, and they have all these old records of like belly dancing music that we all have now. But we didn't get as much of that as kids as I wish we had. I mean, that's one side. And the other side is like growing up in the South and my dad's side of the family is very Southern, been in the South for many generations. And I mean, you know, the what's interesting about it is there's just, anytime you try to find homogenization or cultural purity, it, collapses upon further examination because there's kind of no th such thing because it's always a con constant negotiation process you know mm -hmm. so like southern music you know i'm just using that term broadly but so much of it comes from african-american music yeah. africa in general it's pretty much all affected by it i mean mm -hmm. a lot of people don't even know this but the banjo was an african instrument and people associate it with white southern culture but you can't separate what the past has done so like I did grow up listening to and surrounded by a lot of Southern music and like a lot of my relatives who played music play Southern music. And then there was some classical music also like two of my great aunts, one was an opera singer and one was a um, pianist who a great music teacher and a lot of different musical family influences. Probably the music that I most quickly identified with and heard the most outside of like, you know, obvious stuff like rock and like pop and indie, like those are like, you know, cult we don't think of them as cultural music, but like they are yeah. between that and like my uncles and one of my uncles like had a mandolin and played bluegrass and also played guitar. And he taught me and my sister this song that's like from my dad's hometown, like old folk song. I mean, like there's just a lot of folk elements. Um, so that was like the music that I like most organically absorbed, mm -hmm. I would say, where like, I just kind of heard it so much that I wouldn't even be able to tell you where all of it came from. Church music too, you know, all of that stuff kind of plays into it. It's also just in the South, like people listen to a lot of religious music in the South, gospel yeah. music, both more like black music and more like what we would think of as more white music, like country mm -hmm. folk stuff. It's all influenced each other. There's a lot of roots of things. So all of that, I've just kind of always loved Southern music and all of that seeps into my jazz writing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, lately I've been trying to work on putting out some more like blues and stuff that's a little more like 
purely Southern. Mm-hmm. But the other side of like my Lebanese heritage, my grandma always wanted me to play the oud. And so after she passed away, I decided to buy one. So I'm kind of trying to recapture that heritage, you know. We used to go to Hafliz, which are like big dance parties when we were kids. Okay. So, like, I used to hear all of this Lebanese music at the Hafliz. I have uh, learned a few songs that my older Lebanese relatives know, and they'll be like, oh my gosh, the wheat song. Cool. Yeah, a lot of it's a whole mixed up thing. It's like music am I supposed to make? Yeah. Jazz is really comes from Black America. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's mixed into the cultural landscape. There's no music that I can claim ownership of as a person, you know. Mm-hmm. But there's all these musics that I have interest in or roots in that I'm interested in, you know. And you just, yeah. Music is it's reflective of your mixed cultural background. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. I have one last question for you, Kit. Okay. What is it about music that keeps you inspired and keeps you wanting to do it? after all of these years? Um, my biggest sources of creativity are nature mm-hmm. and books. And those are just two things that I've loved since I was a kid. So like, that's where I draw my inspiration. Like a lot of the seeds of my ideas, I'll write like when I'm visiting home and have like taken some nice walks and like mm-hmm. my parents' house is like in the woods basically. So I just like go outside, you know, and then I'm like listening to the birds chirp and then playing on the piano and The one common factor is large amounts of free time. It's like you churn out stuff when you're just like, you have the time to let it breathe and think. And and then the opposite, like the hustle of like the intensity of everyday life as a musician is where you like finish those ideas. That's what drives you to take something that's, you know, 25% there and take it all the way. And then sometimes just like the when you're doing music all the time, all these gigs and stuff, and like you have 30 minutes And like, it just something comes out because you're just so inundated with it. I don't know that there's any rhyme or reason. It happens all kinds of ways. But this feeds in very nicely with what you were saying before, which is that the grit adds to the art. Oh, yeah. 100%. I mean, Duke Ellington, I I think I was going to quote this and I forgot to quote it. In his biography, at one point, someone asked him like, because he led bands until the day he died. And someone asked him like, why don't you just retire and take some time off or whatever? And he was like, Because if I was sitting on the beach somewhere in California, I wouldn't make music anymore. Basically, something along the lines of, if I was just chilling, then like I wouldn't do this, and like I want to do this, and you know, this is what keeps me motivated and keeps me putting out work. The hustle was part of the experience to him. I don't know. It's 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 a back and forth because like I don't like glorifying the hustle. Yeah, a lot of people do that to like <laughs> justify. Yeah, I know that it's it's an optimization curve. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me just say I always optimize my curves. Like if I'm gonna be a curve, it's optimized. <laughs> I mean an unoptimized curve is like eggs without bacon. Yeah. That's well, my final thought. We will definitely quote you on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Kit. And yeah. it was awesome to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for uh starting this podcast. I'm really excited to see who else y'all interview that uh keep the music going <laughs> and listeners if you haven't already had a chance to check out kids music please do so now it's available basically on all music platforms including spotify and bandcamp you can also find links to his music on our webpage which is ninadamusic.blogspot.com thank you for tuning in until next time keep listening to the basic music okay.